All of it is supported by Missouri, makers of handcrafted jewelry that's made to last. Looking for the perfect Mother's Day present? Missouri has you covered. Get free shipping on all orders in the U.S. and Canada, plus a two-year warranty. Head to Missouri.com slash all of it or use code all of it for 10% off your first order. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash all of it. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Singer-songwriter Billy Bragg has dedicated his 35-year-plus career to music and political activism. From his early punk-inspired records to his collaboration with the band Wilco on an album of lyrics written by American folk singer Woody Guthrie, Bragg's music with a social and political consciousness has earned him the nickname The People's Poet. Billy Bragg has also written five books that deal with music history and politics. He joins us now in our studio to talk about his new book, The Three Dimensions of Freedom, and he agreed to perform a few acoustic songs. Billy, welcome to all of it. Great to be here for all of it. I love your Instagram blurb mm-hmm. explanation of yourself. As a progressive. <laughs> As a progress, a progressive is someone who wants to see society reorganized so that everyone has access to the means by which to reach their full potential. Why did you decide to put that on Instagram? Well, I think we li- we live in a in a kind of post ideological world, where where terms such as socialist come with a lot of baggage, you know, mostly from the twentieth century, from terrible things that happened in what were really totalitarian states rather than socialist mm-hmm. states. So to go straight in with the S word, people are already going to have some idea of you. Um, I think a progressive, um, that definition of progressive is much wider so that people who are broadly speaking on the same side as me don't have to define themselves in reference to an ideology that has many different flavours. I mean, you know, there's not just one type of socialism. There's lots of different types of socialism. Some of them uh, have been negative in the past. The same as with patriotism. There are negative and positive types of patriotism. Mm-hmm. Um and I think we just need to be talking in in a post-ideological world. We need to be talking in broader broader terms so that we can be more inclusive. My guest is Billy Bragg. The name of his new book is The Three Dimensions of Freedom. So this is your fifth book. When did you decide to start writing books well, about wrote, the things that, that wrote, are, yeah, are interesting to you? I wrote my first book in 2006 after a racist fascist party called the British National Party won 12 seats on the local council of the town where I grew up in East London Mm. where my family of Barking and Dagenham Council. This was a real shock. I'd already made an album addressing that issue, an album called England Half English that was trying to alert people to the rise of the far racist right. This had happened and I, I just felt I had to do something more than write a song. So I wrote a book about belonging. I think belonging is more important than nationality or patriotism, the sense of belonging that, that really if, I don't know if you have a concept of Americanness, but in England, we t- they talk about Englishness. It's a very a vague concept, but if it means anything, it's got to mean, I think, about where you are rather than where you're from or where your grandparents were from, you know? It's got to be about place and the, the space that we share. So I wanted to write a book that expressed my love of the place that I came from and my family's, how I ended up being born there, those kind of things. Mm. So it was really an exploration of British identity, but also my hometown, 
what it was like growing up there, how my ancestors came to, you know, the economic circumstances that brought my ancestors together there. Things that, you know, I think everybody should know. I personally think, maybe I'm strange, but I think everyone should know why they were born, where they were born. Or should have some understanding of the... Of what do you think that would provide somebody? What does that give somebody that you think is useful personally and also for community? I think for uh, personally, I think it gives them appreciation of the struggles that their ancestors went through and the pressures that they were under. Mm-hmm. Um, and community-wise, I think it does give a sense of belonging. No one chooses to be born where they were born. It's one of those things we would have to come to terms with. Some people <laughs> reject true. it. Some people run away from it. Some people do all those things and then find they, they miss it terribly. It's a really important aspect of your personal personality whether you embrace it or whether you reject it and so um it's it is tr- i don't know if it's true in um the united states of america but in the uk um on search ending search engines on the internet uh, family tree history is comes second after uh, <clears throat> pornography in search engines so clearly it's important to some people that's so interesting isn't it yeah it is. And that we, do you not have ah. pro- programs like Who Do You Think You Are? They're, yeah. They're, yeah. They're compelling, aren't they? They are. I actually worked on a program like that. Yeah. They're compelling programs. And I think they they reflect, because so many of us live in the moment. And, yeah. you know, our ancestors too lived in the moment. But, you know, how do we, how do we connect with them? And how do we uh, learn from them? And how do we do justice to the sacrifices they made to get us where we are. We owe them a great deal. They're not around, most of them, not around to to benefit from that. But by knowing them, it it gives us a chance to get our bearings, you know. If someone gives you a map, it's just a piece of paper if you don't know where you are. The first thing you've got to know is where you are. And I think that those aspects of your personality are some vectors that at least give you a starting place mm-hmm. to, to then map where it is you want to go. Without that, I think you're always going to be, you know, somewhere, you know, not, not knowing where, you, where, you, where you're between and where you're, you, maybe you know where you're going, but not, not where you're from. Well, you find that with a lot of African-American people, they want to know where I'm from someplace. Yeah. Where in Africa yeah. are my people from? They are enslaved people taken from a place yeah. to another place. And that I, I know for a lot of people that's really important. Understandably. Yeah. I visited the uh, Museum of African American History and Culture when I was in uh, Washington, D.C. I only managed to uh, go through the history part of it. But very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. And uh, a reminder of my nation's role in the slave trade. You know the the exploitation of human beings, the sugar trade back to London, stuff back to Africa, more human beings. You know our our empire was built on on uh, such mm-hmm. terrible terrible misery. My guest is is Billy Bragg. I'm curious. You said something interesting. You said I wanted to say more than I could say in a song, so I wrote a book. Mm. But you can say so much in a song. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you've you've got to. Um, You've got to expand on ideas. But, but when you write a song, you're giving someone an idea to let to do with whatever they like with it. You know, mm-hmm. when Smokey Robinson wrote the tracks of my tears, he didn't know it was going to be about me and Teresa Sapsworth, who I sat across the aisle from <laughs> when I was in the third year at school. He didn't realise that was going to be exactly about how I felt about her. Mm-hmm. He had no cognizance of that. <laughs> so when you write a song, you you know you let it go. If you're if you're trying to go beyond that, 
if you're trying to use your platform in a way that actually does something more than just uh, you know give people a, a a moment of inspiration, if you're trying to broaden and, and pick up on ideas and, and join the debate, then you need to write a little bit more. I think so. Uh, it was important to me to uh, both to write the book about. Um, about belonging, and also to write a new book about accountability. I've, I mean, I have written songs about these things. That's the thing. I have actually written these songs, and they they only go so far. You know, you're gonna you have to come back and come around again and and build up the argument and give people the the uh, the tools to make arguments themselves. This is a 12 inch remix. Uh, I think it may be a triple the- a triple album with a <laughs> gatefold sleeve that builds up to yeah. a, a three dimensional argument. <laughs> I'm still going to ask you to play a song, though. Yeah, that's cool. What's your first one you're going to play for I think us? I might play a song that's broadly speaking, is about accountability, uh, which is called Not Everything That Counts Can Be Counted. It, its first line uh, comes from something that our Prime Minister once said uh, when he was the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, and they asked him about uh, his politics, and he said, uh, I am pro-having my cake and pro-eating it. And although that's a glib line, it it underscores something mm-hmm. really frightening because it, it shows that Johnson and men like him have always got away with both writing the rules and breaking them at the same time. And, and that, I think, is mm-hmm. the dangerous situation we find ourselves in, both in the UK at the moment and in this country, which we will doubtless touch upon after I've played this song. <laughs> <laughs> nice if we could have our cake and eat it but that's impossible to do too many people have invested in this outcome they simply can't afford for it not to come true we've ceded too much power to the market let it decide what's right or wrong Now everybody seems willing to lend credence And truth is so devalued It's going for a song Not everything that counts can be counted Who holds the markets to account Not everything that counts can be counted Not everything that can be counted counts People have had enough of experts And their inconvenient facts Here's what the media really won't tell you Exactly who it is taking control back all opinions are equal in the free market of ideas and truth is nothing more than opinion that's garnered the most likes provoked the loudest cheers not everything that counts can be counted Who holds the markets to account 
Not everything that counts can be counted Not everything that can be counted counts There isn't really any room for dreamers If you've got principles that's nice The market isn't interested in values Except for those it can define as price All bow to the power of the market Till it throws up a different face If you're not white or male or compliant The system is designed to keep you in your place Not everything that counts can be counted Who holds the markets to account Not everything that counts can be counted Not everything that can be counted counts My guest is Billy Bragg. We'll have more with Billy after a quick break. This is all of it on WNYC. This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. My guest is Billy Bragg. Billy has a new book out called The Three Dimensions of Freedom. I also want to talk to you about the compilation, the BBC compilation, a little bit. Uh, But you start your new book with the line, human beings have never had so much power. Yeah, the the smartphones in our pockets allow us to, you know, order up the most incredible things, both literally physically, but also virtually uh, in terms of any particular truth that we want to hold. You can find evidence to back that up. And in that, veracity is, has kind of been completely devalued. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's 16-year-old girls at the UN asking world leaders to get behind the science. I mean, you know, this, is this the enlightenment being overturned? What's happened? And I've found... Over the last few years, the um, the new breed of perhaps we might call them free speech warriors who believe that they have uh, an unalienable right to say what they want, when they want, to whomever they want, with no comeback, uh, seem to have been uh, setting the tone for debate. Now, that, that idea that you can say whatever you want with no comeback, that's not free speech, that's free reign. That's what they want. They don't want to be criticized. And criticized they should be because they fail in their determination to speak and and not be uh, challenged. They fail to understand the second dimension of freedom, which is equality. That you should give equal weight and equal respect to the views of other people. That you should ensure that the right of free speech that you demand for yourself is respected when they're speaking to you. So that rather than having an argument, you can have deliberation. Of course you can disagree. Of course you can vehemently disagree. Of course you can offend other people. You know, that's part of it. But what you can't do is be abusive. What you can't do is is attack people, make personal attacks on people, make racist, misogynist statements. Um, And unfortunately, um, that aspect of, uh, of liberty, shall we say, is not respected. And I would argue that without... 
equality, liberty really is nothing more than privilege. You're getting to say that because you've got the loudest voice. But there's another aspect to freedom that I think is absolutely crucial if we are to live in a society where um, freedom has some agency, has some teeth, and that is accountability. Because liberty without accountability is the most dangerous freedom of all, and that is impunity. And far too often now we're seeing people acting with impunity uh, all the way to the highest office in the land, in your land and in my land. And I think that is dangerous because the slippery slope to authoritarianism doesn't begin with jackboots in the streets and closing down newspapers. Mm -hmm. It begins when the uh, regulations are so lax that the powerful feel that they can act without challenge. And that's both in the economy, both in society, and both in in politics. And I would add also in relationships, I would would say, because this book isn't only aimed at talking about uh, the the political discourse, uh, the economy, the rise of algorithms. It's also about how we deal with one another um, in social media. How do we... Um, immediately come to a conclusion about the person that we're talking to, debating with, is acting in good faith. And I would suggest that the the parameters of liberty, equality and accountability is this person giving me the respect due. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know me, you know, never spoke to me before and we're having a discourse. Are we respecting each other? Am I respecting their point of view? And am I accountable for something I've said? If I've said something and they challenge me, do I, you know block them, throw up, you know, accuse them of political correctness as a means of diverting the the debate, or do I accept that accountability is reciprocal? That's the great thing about these these three dimensions. The the liberty is the most important Mm -hmm. because it empowers us. It's the bedrock of freedom, the right to express your opinion. Equality is reciprocal. You know, it, it calls upon you as someone who, who respects freedom, to reciprocate to, to others. Freedom isn't free. You, know, you have to take some responsibility. But accountability is, is crucial because it is both empowering, it empowers you to hold others to account, but it's also reciprocal because you have to make yourself accountable to others. You have to respect their point of view. I do like the accountability portion because I think people can say whatever they want. They can say all the racist, misogynist things they want, but then they can't put their finger in their dimple and think, yeah. but you can't exactly how dare you I agree. come back at me yeah that's the thing and <laughs> you, you know people have the right to say whatever they write uh, they want but they have to accept responsibility for that you know and responsible i would argue responsibility and accountability are two slightly different things mm-hmm. you know when you take responsibility by using that term we're, we're suggesting it belongs to the individual you're taking responsibility for yourself but when someone holds you to account that's someone outside of your yeah. personal space and they're coming. So accountability suggests that, that you have some degree of uh, agency over other people. And I, I do think at the root of both the rise of Donald Trump and Brexit is a lot of people out there feel they no longer have agency over their lives. They no longer feel their voice is heard. And an anger comes from that and uh, an urge to uh, lash out towards minorities, towards, uh, you know, people, anybody else. Yeah, exactly. You write in the book, the 2008 crash was a crisis of accountability, not capitalism. That's because the idea of neoliberal capitalism 
the fundamental idea of that is firstly um, that the free market has all the answers to everybody's problems and any politician that says that is shirking the responsibility as a legislator for uh, regulating society and the second thing that comes with that is the neoliberal concept of Tina which was first coined by Margaret Thatcher when asked about neoliberal capitalism she said there is no alternative and we've lived with that I mean Tony Blair Bill Clinton, Barack Obama even, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. We've lived through that. And one of the real uh, things that I was deeply worried about during your last election was, although Hillary Clinton would have made a great president, she was not a change candidate. She was a candidate of the status quo, of more of the same. And I think that in many ways uh, did for her more than, than Trump's tub-thumping and sexism and, and racism. I think it was mm -hmm. the idea that people desperately want change. They want change that affects their lives. And if they don't get it, don't be surprised if they're willing to vote for chaos because that's what Brexit is and that's what Trump is. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a finger to, to the people who live in, inside the Beltway, in your case, in my case, in, in Westminster, mm -hmm. who they feel have not listened to them. And, you know, Brexit really was a chance to give them a kick in the pants and a lot of people who'd never voted before queued up to do that and we'll do it again if we have another referendum we've got to be aware of that I'm interested you, you mentioned earlier that you wrote your you had something very specific in mind when you wrote your, your first book mm. there, was, there was something that really was a catalyst for you was there one thing outside of politics that was a catalyst for this book? Well I think it works on another, a number of different levels really um you know that feeling when you, you buy a new car and nobody else has got one and everywhere you go afterwards you keep seeing the same car, the same colour? Well, I started to feel that about accountability. I started to see that as the hole in every donut I looked at, everywhere I saw a problem. Um, and so I was looking for some way to join the dots into into something that, that addressed this in a way that was straightforward, understandable as a songwriter you want to you don't want to simplify things but you want to you want to give people a, a relatively accessible means by which to uh, approach the subject and what you're trying to say um, so I, I was invited to give a, a talk at the Bank of England to the staff at the Bank of England and I decided to talk about accountability because they've been responsible for the past few years uh, since the crash in 2008 of uh, uh, for running a program of quantitative easing, which I don't know if you have that in America. It's where the central bank gives money to the retail banks with to encourage them to mm -hmm. lend to um, small businesses and uh, home buyers. And what's happened is that the banks have just used it to shore up their bottom line. And that money has not got through to the real economy. And uh, as a result, people with assets houses, shares, they've benefited from it, but those people it was directed towards have not. And the problem is that the bank was given no direction. It was just told to give this money to the retail banks. And there should have been democratic control of that situation. If it wasn't mm -hmm. working, it should have then gone to schools, to hospitals, to the social care sector. It should have. There should have been accountability. Well, <laughs> so that's what I was talking about. So when our friends at Faber asked me if I was interested in writing a pamphlet, and it is mm -hmm. a pamphlet, it's not a huge book, it's only 17,000 words, it's a 90-minute read, I thought it would be interesting to kind of try to uh, join the dots for people about how we got to this place, how... Um, the idea of a, uh, a capitalist system that can run itself and doesn't need any regulations could come to be. Uh, but also how in history, 
people have dealt with absolute power when they found it. You know, in my country, mm. the last person to suspend parliament was Charles I. And he su suspended parliament because he wow. believed in absolute monarchy. And as a result of that, we ended up having a civil war. Now, we're not going to have a civil war, but we did to resolve the issue of accountability because he was defeated in battle, but he just wouldn't accept that parliament had a role to play. So eventually they indulged, well, they didn't indulge, but they, they had a moment of rather extreme accountability when they chopped off his head. They put him on trial and chopped off his head. And what came from that is a transition in my country from policy that was made by tradition and theocracy to the beginnings of policy made by deliberation and democracy. It wasn't instant. We had to go through a lot more trouble. We nearly had another civil war in the 1680s that was resolved peaceably, the Glorious Revolution, our own Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. But we ended up, because uh, this was all before Thomas Paine wrote The Rights of Man, um, this was in 1688, we ended up, our constitution, our Bill of Rights being a agreement between the Crown and Parliament. We have no document in our constitution that begins, we the people. I'm curious if you... You have a whole fan base that loves your music and has for years. Do you use this writing? Do you see use your platform as an artist to sort of as, as to entice your music fans into your writing and into thinking about these things more than just your music? Bottom line, Alice, I'm a communicator. Whether I'm writing a song, doing a gig, writing a book, talking to your audience fire on something off on Twitter. I'm a communicator. When I was 19 years old, if I wanted someone in New York to hear my opinion, I had only one option available to me, which was to learn to play guitar, write songs, do gigs, and hope one day that I would come and play on the roof of the Danceteria for five nights in August 1984. And lo and behold, I was fortunate enough to do that. And I'm even more fortunate to still be able to play in your city. So that's, you know, that was my just that was a medium for me to communicate and I'm still trying to offer people my own perspective. You know, that's my hope, that it's not just escapism, that it's that there's a more of a, a uh, I fire them up a bit because I'll tell you this, they fire me up the way they respond to my songs. Best of Billy Bragg at the BBC 1983 to 2019, a new compilation? Yes, a new compilation album, yeah, of uh, sessions that I did back in the day for people like John Peel at night, uh, mm -hmm. Janice Long, uh, Kid Jensen... They, they were from the time when everyone was listening to the BBC, everyone was listening to John Peel. So if you if you, you got a session on John Peel, all of a sudden everybody knew you were and you could get gigs anywhere around the country. Before, I was getting gigs on a word-of-mouth basis. And so consequently, you know, it was just around London. But once I'd been on Peel, everybody knew who I was. And there's a lovely story about how I, I got my first person. I don't know if you know it. No, please tell me. When, I, when my first album, Life's a Riot with Spy vs. Spy, came out, um, you know, they, they gave me a box of 25 records and said, see if you can get some radio play. There was no one to plug them or anything. So I took uh, some copies down to the BBC Broadcasting House and in envelopes, John, wrote John Peel's name, left for John Peel and the other DJs. And that night, we were in with some mates in Hyde Park, which is about a mile from the BBC, playing football. And we'd finished, and we were having a few beers, and someone had their car door open, and we were listening to Kid Jensen on the radio, which is the guy who was on before Peel. Peel was on at 10 o'clock, Kid was on at 8. Anyway, John Peel came in to talk about the show, who was on while we were standing, and he said, I would do anything for a mushroom biryani. 
which is an Indian meal with rice. And so I thought, wow, here's my chance. So I got out my football kit. I nipped down the back of Oxford Street where there's lots of Indian restaurants, got a mushroom biryani, went to BBC to the reception, and there was a you know, guy in a uniform, peak cap at reception. I said, oh, mushroom biryani for John Peel. Blow me, they phoned him up and said to him, <laughs> John, your mushroom biryani's it. And he come down. He came down to take it from my hand. So I was able to say to him, hi, John, my name's Billy Bragg. I um, left an album for you today. I wonder if you'd perhaps give it a, lift, a listen. He was like, yeah, sure. So I went home. And I tuned in and he played track one side one and afterwards he said, uh, and I would have played it without the mushroom biryani. So that was the beginning of a, a wonderful relationship. Billy Bragg, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alison. This is All of It on WNYC. All of It is supported by Majuri, makers of handcrafted, ethically sourced jewelry for every day that's made to last. Looking for the perfect Mother's Day present? Majuri has taken the guesswork out of gifting offering everything from dainty 14K solid gold pieces to pearls, diamonds, gemstones, and more. Make it personal with an engraving, or if you can't decide, check out their curated gift guide. Let them take care of the rest, gift wrapping included. Get free shipping on all orders in the U.S. and Canada, plus easy returns and a two-year warranty. Head to Missouri.com slash it or use code it for 10% off your first order. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash it.